1: Good day, good day ladies and gentlemen. My name is Corey Smith, production assistant here with Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uncle Jimmy could be here with us for today. So I'm here delivering this update of Jason's weekly fire starters. Alright. Great week of shows this week. And Jason kicked it off with Monday show talking about The Brooklyn Nets and how they were on the brink of elimination in the NBA playoffs. Jason believed that the real reason behind the Nets' struggles this year wasn't Kyrie Irving. It wasn't Kevin Durant. It was no more than former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Check out what he had to say. At some point this week,
2: possibly tonight at the Barclays Center, the Boston Celtics will eliminate Kyrie Irvin, Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons, Steve Nash, and the Brooklyn Nets from the NBA playoffs. The Nets, who started the season with former MVP James Harden on the roster, were a preseason favorite to win it all. Pundits thought Harden, Irving, and Durant could, at least for one season, duplicate the mini dynasty Durant, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson achieved at Golden State. Instead, these Nets will go down as the biggest flop in NBA history. They finished the regular season just six games above 500, backed into the playoffs with a play-in victory over the Cleveland Cavaliers, and are down 0-3 to the Celtics in a first-round playoff series. Yep, I know exactly what I'm saying. I believe these Nets are more disappointing than the LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, Los Angeles Lakers team that couldn't even qualify for the play-in tournament. The Lakers team was overhyped, a victim of foolish expectations. The addition of Westbrook and his cancerous attitude to any roster kills any legitimate shot at contending at a high level. I didn't find this year's Lakers team disappointing. Their failure was inevitable. The Nets could have been great. One man ruined the Brooklyn Nets. It ain't who you think. Bill de Blasio, the former lunatic mayor of the New York of New York City, destroyed the Nets with his insane vaccine mandate for New Yorkers. The autopsies on the Brooklyn Nets are already being filed. The causes of death center on Irving's refusal to get vaccinated, Durant's poor performance against the Celtics, Nash's inexperienced coaching, and Simmons's refusal to even suit up. Here's a little collage, a collection of comments trashing the Nets. Go, is Kevin Durant a great, great player? He is, and he's been stifled by Boston. And I was going to go there. And, and let you
3: me tell you job. something. I don't want a bad mouth to badmouth the dude, but I'm. T- I, I, see, you guys always talk about that championship stuff. I try to tell y'all, all these bus riders, they don't mean nothing to me. If you ain't driving the bus,
2: don't walk around and talk about you a champion. If you riding the bus, I don't want to hear. Kyrie Irving is box office. This brother deserves $50 million a year.
0: I would never give him a long-term contract again. He cannot be trusted. You pay him one year at a time. I don't care how much money he gets, but you give it to him one year at a time. You know why? Because you got to make sure he's going to show up to work. This Here's minute. the deal. Got you.
2: I'm not going to kill him for the egregious challenge because Kyrie lied to him for reasons that I can't figure. Kyrie knew he fouled and was like, hey, there's two and a half minutes left in a playoff game. Use our valuable challenge, even though I slapped the other opposing team's player right across the hand. Like what Kyrie was doing here, but it is Nash's job to not, you know, just listen to his players blindly with 320 left in a five point playoff game, but he did. I'll let that go. And I have been adamant that I think he's running Kevin Durant into the ground since Kevin Durant is playing 40 minutes per game since March 1st. look, Bill de Blasio is being allowed to escape blame. The Nets are dying because of their lack of continuity. Throughout the entire season, the team was in a constant state of flux. Irving couldn't play in home games because de Blasio's stupid mandate. The Nets wouldn't let him play early in road games. Meanwhile, unvaccinated players on opposing teams could visit New York and play. The rule never made an ounce of sense. It was authoritarian, illogical, and grossly unfair. It harmed people, it harmed Irving and the Nets. Irving's status played a role in Harden demanding a trade. Brooklyn's Big Three of Harden, Irving, and Durant, conceived in January of 2021, played 16 games together before dissolving in February of 2022. The Nets acquired Simmons in exchange for Harden. Nearly three months later, Simmons has yet to take the court for Brooklyn. It's difficult for me to blame Steve Nash for Brooklyn's failures. He's never had a chance to coach his full team. Durant and Irving are still learning to play with each other. Simmons is afraid of failure, a deadly sin for a professional athlete. He's never, a member of the Nets if de Blasio acts appropriately. Establishment media will not make this point because it no longer speaks truth to power, it protects power. In the wake of the Nets failure, there's a major, obvious takeaway for professional athletes. Avoid New York and other cities slash states controlled by politicians who believe government is more important than the individual. Irving and Durant need to escape from New York. They should watch the 1981 movie, Escape from New York, for some inspiration. The United States is at war with China and the Soviet Union and decides to turn crime-ridden New York City into a maximum security prison. It's quite similar to modern America. We're in a cold war with China and Russia and New York is crime-ridden and run by prison wardens masquerading as politicians. But let me go back to the movie. Kurt Russell's character, Snake, is hired to extract the president from Manhattan. It's a thrilling movie. It ends with the president half-heartedly acknowledging, acknowledging the people who sacrificed their lives to save him, and Snake embarrassing the president for it. The point is, smart people should avoid placing their faith in the government. Kyrie had every right to decline taking the vaccine. He's young and in ideal health. Only an authoritarian would pass a law punishing citizens for their individual medical decisions. The way New York City and the state of New York handled COVID should alarm its citizens, especially when you compare it to Florida. Had Durant, Hardin, and Irving joined forces on the Miami Heat or Orlando Magic, it would have avoided New York's vaccine insanity and high taxes. They would be a title contender right now creative people and innovators are fleeing New York and California for Texas and Florida, and Tennessee for that matter. Elon Musk and Tesla abandoned California for Texas. Joe Rogan escaped California, I escaped California. Led by New York City, the state of New York has suffered record population loss since the start of the COVID pandemic. In a 12-month period, 3.5% of NYC's population migrated elsewhere. With the uncertainty of COVID and other viruses, why would any elite athlete choose to play in New York? The city's leaders have learned nothing from the pandemic. Eric Adams, the new mayor, is capable of repeating every mistake de Blasio made. Why wouldn't he? He won't be held accountable by corporate media, Bill de Blasio enacted a nonsensical policy and all season we've listened to sports pundits berate Irving and refusing, for refusing to follow it. Irving stood on moral principle and sacrificed a season. He's the closest thing we've ever seen to Muhammad
1: Ali. Too bad the media didn't rally to support him. Then on Tuesday's show, you know, the Elon Musk News with Twitter has caused a big rage. And a lot of that big rage has been coming from people on the left that are afraid of the new climate change that the social media network has coming. Listen to this. Twitter is experiencing a
2: climate change. Elon Musk has changed the climate all around Twitter and social media And boy, oh boy, this is like, you heard about the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, and how it was all a play, and analogy to climate change, and how liberals hair was on fire. Don't look up, you know, things, blah, blah. This is what's going on right now in liberal land. This climate change that Elon Musk has brought to the table uh, has the left completely on fire. They are scared to death about what Musk's $44 billion deal to acquire Twitter, what that means to their ability to control conversation. And so I I just want to start with, uh, there's a bunch of things I saw over social media, there are things I saw on TV yesterday, Uh, but one of the funniest was Ari Melber uh, from MSNBC. His incredible lack of self-awareness about what this climate change over Twitter means uh, had me nearly wanting to fall on the floor, roll out laughing. So let's start with Ari Melber. Let's play that clip. If you own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could
4: secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates all of its nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else, and the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech,
2: philosophically clear, open-minded helper. That is not a Saturday Night Live parody. This man just said, hey, they may turn up some things and turn down others and you may not find out about it until after the election. Hello, Ari Melbourne. Hunter Biden's laptop? Hunter Biden's laptop? Are you really that clueless? Are people on the left really that clueless? That he could go on TV and talk about, oh, my God, if Elon Musk controls Twitter, he might elevate some stories, elevate some points of view, and might diminish others. You can go on TV and say that and not be aware that that's what Twitter has been doing since 2012 for a decade? Are you kidding me? I... I I I I think that's a comedy bit. I honestly think that's Ari Melber trying to be funny, but it gets better. It gets better because Rachel Maddow, as I like to call Joy Reid, Rachel Maddow uh, has, <laughs> Joy Reid has a video, uh, I believe from yesterday, where she's engaging uh, with a uh, the skinny version of Eli Mistal, uh, another brown, dark-skinned man with some kind of funny all-white hair. Uh, But they're talking about Elon Musk and what a threat he is to democracy. Let's play this clip.
4: Elon Musk lives in a world in which the only kind of free speech is white men feeling Mm -hmm. free Mm -hmm. to say whatever the hell they want. And what he doesn't understand, what a lot of those folks don't understand, is speech is actually freer when everybody Everybody not only has the opportunity to have an account and uh, able to afford a phone to be able to tweet, but can feel safe, uh, can know that they're not going to get. Harassed can know that they're not going to get outed, can know that they're not going to get piled on by the kind of astroturfed uh, stands of some very rich man. Uh, and this future in which there would actually be more abundant and equitable speech terrifies the crap yep. out of people like Elon Musk.
1: People can leave; they can choose to not be in that space anymore. And some people will. I can tell you. Look, if y'all want to follow me on counter social, I'm at Joanne Reed. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there, uh, and I don't own nothing of it. I'm getting nothing for saying that. I'm. Just saying there are other places that people can go. Yeah, y'all want to follow me on
2: Social Counter, Social. I'm just throwing that out there. Y'all can follow me. Joy and Reed. I mean, <laughs> this is like, this is supposed to be professional TV. Joy Reed is so deep in the black Twitter abyss that she thinks going on national TV and using that national platform, that's the spot for, hey, I know I went to Harvard University, I know I spent most of my uh, collegiate years and professional career surrounded by white people, I know, but this is the perfect time for me to get on national TV and show everybody I'm just a sister girl from around the way. Y'all can just follow me on social counter account of social at Joe Henry. I. This is what climate change does, though. People panic when there is climate change. And I'm thinking this Twitter climate change is the climate change that the left has been predicting is going to destroy the earth, and and Elon Musk is a meteor that has crashed into their Twitter hemisphere, atmosphere, orbit, and ruined everything. But, no one can take the crown from Sean King. Sean King, uh, the white man who plays black over Twitter and has built a career and a grift off of playing black over Twitter, uh, the social activist that came to the forefront uh, during uh, the Black Lives Matter, I think the Michael Brown situation is when uh, the CIA or somebody put a battery in Sean King's back and said white men go forth and be black and, and take black people to the abyss. And look, I, I, I originally bought, I've confessed that I originally bought Sean King's act and got caught up in the Michael Brown thing and, and the Michael Brown thing and Ferguson, and, you know, Darren Wilson, for those of you, I gotta refresh your memory. But I got caught up in that. And then I figured out that Sean King was a clown and a fraud. I actually met him, interviewed him uh, for a job at the Undefeated. It became abundantly clear upon meeting the dude hey, this dude is white. Once you start doing the research on his uh, history and and his claims or whatever, it's like, this dude is lying about being black. He is a complete fraud. This man is irate that an African-American bought Twitter. And so here's a Sean King tweet who, he had disappeared from Twitter, but then he came back, I believe yesterday, to announce that Uh, Let me get the first one. At its root, Elon Musk wanting to purchase Twitter is not about left versus right. It's about white power. The man was raised in apartheid by a white nationalist. He's upset that Twitter won't allow white nationalists to target, harass people. That's his definition of free speech. Honest, I mean... Sean King has never met Elon Musk. He doesn't know anything about Elon Musk other than what he's read off Wikipedia. And, And he has just assassinated this man's character because he purchased Twitter. Did he buy Tesla for the same reasons? Or build Tesla or whatever for the same reason? All of his other investments, are they all just an extension of his father's white nationalism? And Sean King wasn't done. I think he came back. Uh, Yeah, he came back. Elon Musk has openly called himself a free speech absolutist and said that he wants to create a space where anything can be said about anyone. That's why white nationalists are giddy today, here on Twitter and other platforms that I, I, I track daily. It's dangerous. it's as race is their only card i thought cards had 52 or decks of cards had 52 cards in them we used to play 52 pickup this this deck of cards only has one, one card in it the race card it's their answer to everything Elon Musk has bought Twitter, he must be racist. Elon Musk is pro-free speech, he must be racist. Everybody that doesn't go for whatever Sean King, Rachel Maddow, and Ari Melber, whatever the left, the Democratic Party, it's as if they believe the Democratic Party was founded for the emancipation proclamation of black people you you would think i mean if the way these people act about because that this climate change affects the left everybody believes and it's true that twitter has been a mouthpiece uh for the democratic party and for the left and so anybody elon musk it it must be Any attack on the left, on the Democratic Party, is now framed as an attack on black people. Are we really that stupid that we think the party that was founded by the KKK, the party that was founded by the KKK to support Democratic policy, we really think that organization's whole mission is the promotion, protection, uh, prosperity, the success of Black people is at the forefront of it. Honestly, do we really think that?
1: On Wednesday's show, Jason returns back to the Twitter sphere and all the chaos that's been revolving around the purchase of billionaire Elon Musk, the world's richest man and he focuses his sights on Washington Post journalists, possibly, Taylor Lorenz, and how her attack on the libs of TikTok really goes to show that women are more emotional, but men, they're the ones that want freedom.
2: A reaction to Elon Musk's Twitter acquisition reveals men value freedom and women value safety. In America, there is no free without the dumb, D-U-M-B. Freedom, not freedom, defines America. Our level of free is directly correlated to our tolerance of dumb. The elimination of non-harmful dumb activity restricts freedom and disin- disincentivizes decentivizes the risk-taking that made this country great. Our founding fathers innately understood this. That's why the First Amendment to the US Constitution protected freedom of speech, alongside free exercise of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Had mothers founded America, freedom wouldn't be our highest priority. The First Amendment would likely focus on safety, the right to speak safely, assemble safely, and worship safely. We would be the land of safe spaces, not the land of the free. Women value safety more than men. That is at the root of the hyperbolic reaction to Elon Musk buying Twitter. Musk believes in good old-fashioned American freedom. He stated he's only interested in censoring speech that violates American laws, tweeting, quote, I'm against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they will ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. Musk is willing to allow Twitter to wallow in dumbness, stupidity, and high-risk speech. He recognizes stupidity's essential relationship to freedom. Words aren't sticks and stones. Words have no ability to harm unless we grant them that privilege. Baeja Gaddy Twitter's top lawyer and the person described by Politico as the app's Moral authority has steered the platform toward existing as a safe space for women, the LGBTQIA community, and people of color who support the Democratic Party. Gaddy sets the tone and is the ultimate decision maker when it comes to harassment and dangerous speech on the platform. In 2015, she wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, which made clear her vision to ensure the safety of groups she deemed worthy of a special level of protection. Writing, quote, I'm often inspired by the vigorous debates and controversial issues that occur on Twitter, but I've also been seriously troubled by the plight of some of our users who are trying to silence healthy discourse in the name of free expression. At times, this takes the form of hateful speech and tweets directed at women or minority groups. At others, it takes the form of threats aimed to intimidate those who take a stand on issues." End quote. Twitter's moral authority envisions the platform as an inclusive safe space. She's not alone. All aspects of American culture are focused on eliminating risk, and being inclusive we've been brainwashed into believing that the founding fathers were misguided and set up a system that overvalues freedom and undervalues safety and inclusivity america needs to reflect the sensibilities of women you know what would make the nfl better women playing coaching and managing the game At our current pace of feminization, the NFL will outlaw tackling and blocking by 2040 so that Lizzo's daughter can play nose tackle. We will lie to ourselves that football never needed contact to be exciting. We were stupid for being entertained watching men risk their physical well-being to play a game. Football needs safety and inclusivity. So does America. We foolishly think in order for America to be fair, all things must be for everybody. I don't believe that. Our founders didn't believe that. The people, men or women, bothered by Twitter's rough discourse should exit the platform. Healthy public discourse is a contact sport. Rude, disrespectful, and uncomfortable things will get said. Human beings lack discipline. We cross lines and make mistakes. It's the price of freedom. Not everyone is built for public discourse. We shouldn't soften public discourse to make room for everybody. The voting booth is the safe space for public discourse. America appropriately changed its laws to allow all of its citizens access to vote safely without fear of intimidation or violence. Twitter is not a voting booth. It can't be made safe without severely damaging free speech. I'd rather protect free speech than protect the fragile feelings of women or men on Twitter. American freedom is irreversibly tied to free speech. Feelings, they're random, emotional, and illogical. They equally provoke love and hate a properly functioning society or social media app can't cater to feelings. Indulging feelings leads to chaos. Elon Musk is a threat to the matriarchy and the continued feminization of American culture. The world's richest man boldly planted a flag that he stands with the founding fathers and America's founding principles. Proponents of the matriarchy will frame Musk as sexist, racist, and homophobic. Cowardly men will slander him too. Are you a coward? Are you afraid to admit that, in general, men and women have different sensibilities? Afraid to acknowledge that it's a mistake to feminize every platform and industry to make room for women? too controlled by racial idolatry to recognize that Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and the other flawed Founding Fathers conceived documents that created a system that works better than any other nation's system of governance. If so, you're not man enough for this world. Delete your Twitter account and join Hillary Clinton, Stacey Abrams, Joy Reid, and Rachel Maddow's group text string
1: on Thursday's show we were treated to something quite unexpected as a new hit piece I should say from the Washington Post focused on our very own fearless contributor Royce White Royce had plenty to say about it and Jason let him have the have the floor and go scorch earth on the piece you gotta listen to this I think I think the left thinks like
2: Royce White can could potentially be president. Uh, we better shoot him down now and uh, I, I, I get why you're wearing your uh, public enemy uh, bulletproof vest Royce uh, you're you're a target of the neoliberal establishment.
3: Well, absolutely and uh, thanks for having me back on. It's, it's, it's been a kind of hectic morning but but giving me a lot of thought and you know, this is a wild time we're in, the law of uncertain outcomes. I wanted to read some today for the audience to start us off. Then I got a few comments and and we can go where you wanna go from there. This was William J. Casey, 1981 director of the CIA. He said, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. That was the director of the CIA. Now, for the Washington Post to call me a white supremacist, a white nationalist. So they should just come out and say it, right? They want to call me the N-word, but they know that'd be a little far from their platform. And make no mistake about it, the Washington Post is... A neoliberal, Marxist, globalist institution. Go ahead. You look like you wanted I'd, to say something.
2: <laughs> I, I think you're accurate. I have had my dealings with the Washington Post, uh, and and have had them frame me inappropriately, and I've attacked them for that in writing, and and basically more politely said exactly what you're saying. Is I like, you're the racist, and I think the guy's name was Ben Strauss that's written about me and has, mis- has you know, misframed me on several occasions, but the Washington Post is a racist institution, and if you, as a black person, don't support the script that they're promoting they will assassinate your character the way they're attempting to assassinate yours i mean royce i I just want to walk through the piece because there's so many fascinating elements all the way to ending with an alleged family member of yours allegedly attacking you so they threw everything but the kitchen sink at at you royce and so i get What you're doing in terms of laying the foundation with the CIA director and uh, calling out uh, the the Washington Post for its blatant racism. But as again, as you said, an interesting morning for you. When you read this piece, did you know it was coming? Did they call you and ask for comment? What was your reaction in reading the piece? And then what feedback have you heard? And just did you know this was coming?
3: Yeah, we knew it was coming. I mean, I, I, I agreed to do the interview. I must've done three hours of interview um, with, with, with David Gardner to, to complete this piece. And I gave him the contact information of a few people as well, such as AJ Barker, Jeff Quatnitz, who's partners with Ice Cube and the Big Three and, and some others as well. Um, so I was completely, uh, you know, I, I, I was completely um, open to participate in getting this story right. And I cautioned this journalist uh, to how the editors may change his words or change my words, and I said to him at that point, if anything in this story seems defamatory or, or uh, misinformation, I will ask that the complete transcript of my three hours of interview be released to the public, uh, and, and I will not hesitate to take legal action against the Washington Post. Uh, so, um, but, but let me circle back if I can, Jason. Please, uh, allow
2: me to return. Hold for one second before you, I, I wanna ask one follow-up to that. I read the story and I kept looking for quotes that I said that gave me the indication that they interviewed Royce. I read the story and felt like all the quotes came from things you said on other platforms.
3: Well, there were very few quotes from me altogether, but to be honest, the quotes in there for me, I'm completely okay with. And, and the things that were said about me for the most part, I'm okay with. There were a couple blatant errors in there. Number one, my mom was never a waitress. She was an esthetician. And and they, that shows you how bad they are at this journalist thing is because that's very easy to find out. Not only have I said it publicly, but anybody they talk to knows that my single mother being an esthetician is something I, I talk about often. So it, it's an easy thing to figure out. Um, there were some other things as well. And them trying to, you know, mental health shame me for being an advocate uh, because uh, that's a part of my story as well. And saying that I was hospitalized or my grandfather saying that I had to be hospitalized for anxiety, which isn't true. I've gone to the ER for panic attacks sometimes, which I think people should do because the the symptoms mimic heart attacks. But again, let, let me circle back, please.
2: Hold for I've got to hold for one more second. because You said something fascinating to me that may you're not a journalist. And so it, it, it may not trouble you as much as it troubles me as a journalist. If they did a three-hour interview with you, this story should not rely almost totally on things you said on other platforms. So that's what it seemed like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I misread the story, maybe I read it too quickly, but were there quotes from your actual three-hour interview with David Gardner in this piece? Because my memory says, Everything. Ca- oh, you said this on Steve Bannon's show. You wrote this in a piece earlier. You. Was your is anything you said in that interview in the article? Um,
3: one quote, if anything, that I remember. Everything else was either from my Substack or stuff that I said on Fearless or something I said on on Bannon's uh, War Room show, um, or or maybe something I said on Infowars also with, with Alex Jones or Tim Pool or you know all these other platforms. You're right.
2: There was a quote from MSNBC when you were on with Joy Reed. There was a quote from there, But yeah. What, so to me, that's irresponsible, dishonest. And uh, just were, were they in the room with you when you went on Steve Bannon's show? Because that opening scene comes across as if they were there when you went on the war room with Steve Bannon. No, absolutely not. Got gotcha. you. So now go ahead and circle back and make your point.
3: Thank you. Okay. I've said this before many times on the show, and I'm going to reiterate it right now. We are in a crisis of leadership worldwide. And due to that crisis of leadership, we have a crisis of information. If we had competent, willing, uh, moral, courageous leaders, the crisis of information wouldn't be as bad as it as it is today. And I'm going to use my story and something we talked about early in the week to help lay this out. If you believe that the reason I'm not playing in the NBA today is because I'm afraid to fly or because of my anxiety, you have a problem with how you get your information. If you believe or if you allow the NBA to get off of the hook, by justifying their blackball of me, their blackballing of me, because I wasn't worth the hassle of the things I was discussing. I wasn't skilled enough. You don't know anything about the game. You don't know anything about the game of basketball, the game of politics, or the game of life. The consensus around the NBA circles, team personnel, front office people, coaches, current players, former players, is that my not being in the league now or anytime. time has never been about my talent or skill. Okay, now I say that because there is a significant group of people or audience, even of our audience, that wants to say, keep the sports separate from politics. And my point, again, here today is, sports are politics and the politics are never off. And this piece shows you that. And I wanna circle back because I got a lot of feedback about the Reggie Miller comment. When I was talking about Reggie Miller, I wasn't saying that he's a sellout because of his take on Ben Simmons. I agree with that take on Ben Simmons. As a matter of fact, I, like I said, would be playing if it was me. Okay. In fact, I never missed a game at Iowa state. I missed one game at Iowa state because I had the flu and I actually tried to play in that game and two minutes in I threw up and I couldn't stop throwing up and I was pissed. I couldn't go back in that game. Okay. So I play when the time comes Ben Simmons should be playing. I don't know what's going on with him because I'm not personally connected to him. And I understand that there are things that could really be going on with him from a psychological standpoint. I don't know that to be true. I wouldn't handle mine the way he has the reason what I said about Reggie Miller ties into what we're dealing with around the world. Reggie Miller being a sellout is a categorical fact. And he, like many other public figures that have been propped up by this neoliberal establishment, has ceded the territory for Satan to, to mislead the American public and the public abroad. When I say he's a sellout, what I mean is, if you take money to talk about the world that you see, and it comes... With the unspoken agreement or expectation that you don't talk about certain issues or that you don't talk about certain issues with any conviction, you're a sellout.
1: And on Friday's show, another Washington Post piece, it seems like this Washington Post that comes out with a bunch of news that just basically filled our entire show this week. An opinion piece by Jennifer Rubin titled, The GOP is no longer a party, it's a movement to impose white Christian nationalism. Well, Jason had a lot to say about this, but so did fearless contributors, T.J. Moe, who was in studio, and Delano Squires. Listen to what they had to say. They're trying to define
2: Christianity Hmm. as white and anti-black and trying to subtly message to black people, if you're a Christian, you're supporting republicans and racist white people and basically they're trying to subtly tell black people abandon your christianity uh it is a tool for white supremacy and and what really upsets me is that people are buying what they're selling that's what Concerns me and it's it's literally I talked about this yesterday a little bit with Royce White and was telling previewing like I'm gonna talk with Delano about this tomorrow to, which is today uh, that w- We're buying this nonsense that the thing Christianity the thing that saved us Liberated us from slavery uh, Was the backbone and the strength of the civil rights movement now It's white nationalism, and we should reject it. And it's the Washington Post, which is in Washington, D.C., one of, if not the blackest cities in all of America. That hometown newspaper is publishing articles with a steady drumbeat of black people don't be Christians. Hmm. I don't know if I've read a headline or story more offensive to me.
0: So, so Jason, I think um, this column really picks up in some ways on the conversation we were having last week about Taylor Lorenz, and and in that sense, I'll, I'll say this: it is yet another piece from the Washington Post that I find thoroughly uninteresting and mediocre. Um, Jennifer Rubin has long, long TDS, not long COVID. She has had Trump derangement syndrome. Um, with an extra side of orange man bad for, un- basically since 2016. And one of the symptoms of, of long TDS is that it dulls your ability to accurately perceive the world. So I actually, in, in my notes, clipped the exact quote that you have, and particularly this part where she says, only one side is trying to impose its views on the, <laughs> on, on the other. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading, and again, it's sort of like Taylor Lorenz, where she complains about people doxing and harassing people. So, it's it's not it's not just um, an example of yet another person on the left who has no sense of self awareness. I think what it is is th- this is um, what happens when conservatives start to use the leftist tools against leftists. Put another way, ain't no fun when the rabbit's got the gun. And when you hear them saying ouch in, in, in print and on social media and trying to say, well, they call us groomers, we're gonna call them groomers. What, what you're hearing is someone who's acting in desperation. And that's what this sounds like. So I'm familiar with the whole white Christian nationalist, you know, thing. I see it in sort of the evangelical circles I travel in. Um, Sometimes it's called Christian nationalism with the whiteness sort of inferred. But the truth of the matter is um, everybody is looking to impose their worldview on someone else. And when I see, for instance, black churches, basically, you know, lifting up Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and her elevation to the Supreme Court and analogizing that to Jesus raising from the grave. I realize that everybody's playing this game. But in this case, as I said, Jennifer Rubin is completely off because she, she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about in terms of where things are now in the culture. Um, but as I said, the the writing is not particularly persuasive. She talks about white Christian rural voters but never names them. They, this is just like an, an ephemeral force that's out there. And, and the last thing that I'll say is ironically, what Jennifer Rubin is doing, she's both identifying a demographic group, but, but there's something else going on below that, right? When she uses white, Christian, nationalist, she could have thrown in heterosexual, um, she is speaking to normative categories, at least to, you know, th- th- this is the language of normativity is used, you know, in, in, in CRT literature and, and queer theory and all these other things. So w- w- she's speaking to what is normative or what we have become used to as normative. And that's why the opposite of that, right, is always people of color or, you know, black indigenous people of color, BIPOC, um, uh, LGBTQ, um, atheist, and then globalist. And I, I love the way you cued this up, Jason, because you talked about Washington Post as a hometown newspaper. It, it's, it's a global newspaper, just like the New York Times, right? I don't. I grew up in New York. I never saw the Times as my paper. I would pick up the Daily News if I wanted to l- learn about stuff going on in the city, but the Times is really a concern with being a, a, posmo, a cosmopolitan rag, and I think the Post is operating in that same sense. So I, I hope Jennifer Rubin um, gets on some uh, remdesivir or some other treatment because her, her long TDS syn, syn, uh, symptoms
4: are really starting to show. Delano, I'm sitting here talking to two black, Christian, God-fearing men. And so I read through this article and my only takeaway aside from just, I mean, paragraph after paragraph of stupidity was that the idea that Christianity is only for white people is mm. perhaps the most racist thing that anybody could ever come up with. Cause the idea is, is that your soul is not worth saving. Forget what mm. God says. How about the culture will save you? And so, you know, it's, it's one thing if you say, Hey, that guy's a racist and, and you can go through life talking about politics, right? And we can argue and say, this is our biblical worldview. But when the idea actually comes out and says, Christianity is not for you, you're black, I'm not sure there's a more eternally racist idea that could be conveyed.
0: I I agree with you 100%, TJ. It really is, um, she's the other side of the coin in terms of um, sometimes you'll, you'll hear Black folk who are anti christian say, you know, Christianity is the white man's religion. And Jennifer Rubin has really taken on that, that idea in this piece. The other things that she did, because at one point she talked about white people who can change the systems to, um, you know, undo centuries of injustice. I'm paraphrasing. But she, this is, again, we talk about normativity and subversion. Um, that, that type of thinking is how you get 60 plus years of liberal public policy aimed at black folk whose ultimate impact is to um, incentivize dependency. So when Jennifer Rubin thinks about um, black people, and I say black, not people of color, but but particularly black folks, she's thinking of a class of people who are downtrodden, marginalized, oppressed. She talked about criminal justice, and, and so on and so forth. And she sees the the great white hope, white men, white Christian men as the savior of that class of people. And as I said on the, on this show, I reject any damsel in distress politics. I'm not interested in it. I don't need a white knight. Um, people who say that, oh, you, you shouldn't talk about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I'll say this, I'd rather be pull, pull myself up by my bootstraps than to be pushed around in your bassinet. So Jennifer Rubin is speaking to a bunch of people who think of themselves as babies, who need to be pampered, um, swaddled, given a nice, TJ, you notice, know you, you have your nighttime routine. You, you, you bathe, <laughs> your lotion, you, 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 you give the warm milk, you swaddle and then you lay them down to sleep and you say, there you are. Sleep softly, my, my sweet
1: princess. I'm not interested in that. I'm not that type of guy. And that's all for this week, folks. A lot of great content this week. Make sure you go and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that like and subscribe button. Make sure you join the Fearless Army. Get some new Fearless swag. And we'll see you on Monday.